Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I'm Jim Zika. And uh, every episode of the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies. We watch a new movie and then we watch an old movie and we compare like with like. Um, and uh, this episode, I say the same thing every week. I'm going to say it again. We're comparing the two films that share an awful lot. It's Spies, it's Trains, Chases and Handcuffs. Um, it's two films released 88 years apart. We have watched uh, the new Tom Cruise Sprintathon, uh, Mission Impossible, colon, Dead Reckoning, colon, Part 1. Uh, and we're comparing it to Alfred Hitchcock's 1935 adventure, The 39 Steps, the film which I famously cannot remember the name of. Is it 49 yeah. Steps, 29 Steps, 250 still Steps? Th- still 39 <laughs> and not counting. It's, a, it's an indeterminate number of steps. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was writing a little intro here and I, I kind of was starting, started to write down that these two films share a lot of DNA. Um, but then I looked up and apparently humans share 50% of our DNA with a banana. So, uh, so it's not a useful analogy, and I'm never going to say that again. But these two <laughs> two films do share; um, they do share quite a lot. Are they? Is that true about the banana? I think it 50%. is. Well, I, I got it off Google, so it must be true. It must Surely, be. okay. <laughs> they share a lot. I was surprised how much they share, and there's actually some Dial of Destiny sharing going in here too. Mm. I'll talk about that later. I think. Yeah, I have I have a lot of comments about trains that we're going to make later on, but yeah. Um, yeah, but right before sure. we get before we get stuck into into the perils of train travel, we should do the socials. Yes, there's something called Instagram. <laughs> Unless it's is it now called Xtagram or something? <laughs> Give like? it any minute now, surely Zetagram. <laughs> yeah, we are at Two Real Cinema Club. There, you can read the blog at tworealcinemaclub.com. You can comment on the YouTube channel. You can email us at tworealcinemaclub at gmail.com. Do please let us know what you think, ask questions, correct our mistakes, uh, be like the rest of the world, offer us a sponsorship, <laughs> or explain how many steps there really are. James, you have called this, I think, 29, 39, 49, 59. I, I, I simply couldn't remember how many steps there were. Although, strangely, that does not impair your enjoyment of the film. I will say that I have started calling this episode the 39 Mission Impossible, because <laughs> so. I think we're getting close to that number. Certainly feels that way. Uh, please tell your friends about us. I think that's the best way to spread the word about the Two Real Cinema Club family. That helps us out. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Wherever else you do. I think in here you'd written whenever else. Okay, have I? <laughs> I've even, I know one of the socials are doing so badly. I can't even spell. That's it. I can't count and I can't spell. I've failed both hurdles. That's why you're a podcaster. <laughs> I can talk, barely. Shall we get in or shall we get out? Shall we Shall we just spin around in ever-decreasing circles? <laughs> uh, let's start the spinner uh, with, with uh, Mission Impossible. I often like to start with a mea culpa or a, some such thing. A confession. And I would, I would say this. I would say Dr. Razika and I, we know that you, dear listeners have infinite choices, and you have full agency when deciding where to spend your podcast listening time. We are glad that you have made the choice to travel with the Two Real Cinema Club. Having said that, (laughs) I want to give you the permission structure to not listen to certain episodes or skip ahead if there's a film you know you will not like. (laughs) I do this in part because I want the same permission structure for myself. Um... My wife, who certainly gave herself that permission, left the film that we were about to discuss about halfway through. (gasps) 
uh, about the midpoint, and she never came back. I was a little bit worried and had to text her during the screening, but uh, she preferred to sit in a hot in a car, very hot oh car, God. on a very hot day, <laughs> for eighty minutes because she felt her brain would burn less there <laughs> than in the cool and comfortable environment <laughs> controlled movie theater. Her mission was over. <laughs> so, just to let you know, I mean, we I listen to a lot of podcasts. I think we all do at this point. So, we're very happy that you're w- you're with us. But um, if you feel that a film is not right for you, or maybe our conversation is inappropriate in some way, please feel free. Fast forward. Feel free to check out. Yeah, come back the next week. We understand. We understand. <laughs> we do the same thing. Um, all right. This is my first. And my last Mission Impossible film. Well, I was, I was going to ask you how many of the others have you seen, and you've just answered that. None. I, yeah. did you, but did you watch the TV series as a boy? I definitely did. So I remember little bits from the... And, and I, I thought that we were beyond the days of um, this message will self-destruct in 10 seconds. I thought that was just from the 50s and 60s. They and loved that. They, had, yeah, they, they yeah. necessarily have to do that for all of these films. In the same way that they... You know, again, <laughs> they have to repeat that this mission, should you choose to accept it. Yeah. Those are written in stone. They're, they're stamped out on the script before they start working on the treatment. Oh, boy. So they, they definitely have their touchstones. Um, I kind of found it impossible that there's more impossible to come in part two, <laughs> Dead Reckoning. Don't know why that is necessary. But uh, clearly the missions are possible. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep making them, right? It's going to be a misnomer. Um, I, and I admittedly, I'm not really the wingman for this film. So I'm just going to, and I haven't cleared this with you, Jimmy, but I propose that we, we re-review Top Gun Maverick instead. <laughs> so if you want to talk about Top Gun Maverick instead... We could do that right now. Well, that, you know what? That, I think that is what Tom Cruise was hoping this movie was going to do. Yeah, I think he was planning not. to rule the summer again Yeah. Um, after last year's Maverick ruled the summer. The film has disappointed yeah. at the box office, hasn't it? So Mission Impossible 7 yeah. apparently cost $291 million to make. Tom Cruise's most wow. expensive film has taken around $560 million and kind of run wow. out of steam, no pun intended. Yeah. So you know, it's not going to recoup theatrically. So I think they will be very disappointed. Not quite yeah. as disappointed as your wife, but they're looking pretty downhearted. I think it's incredible that they've done two just absolute blockbuster films in just two years' time. He and uh, Christopher McQuarrie. Um, huge, huge uh, undertakings. And the fact that they've got both of these films out with just in, within more or less a year um, is quite an achievement. Well, hats off to them. Do you want to tell us what you can recall um, about the probably excessively complicated and not entirely necessary story of Mission Impossible 7. I will. Let's talk a little bit about the, Bruce, the, the screenplay. Uh, it's credited to Bruce Geller, in part, who's been dead for 45 <laughs> years, which I think explains the quality of the film. Um, he's actually the creator of the franchise going back decades. So um, he presumably he wrote those bits about this message will self-destruct and should you choose to accept it? Prob- yeah, probably. And he must just have an estate that has control over the, the brand to a certain extent. So I think his family's still doing well, even though he's not doing so well <laughs> because he is deceased. Eric Gendrison, who wrote three episodes of Band of Brothers and a film called Ithaca. Which I have not seen. Have you seen that? No, but I was just looking at it. Unbelievably, it's from 2015. Um... Directed by, um, uh, oh, oh my God, why is that? <laughs> Meg Ryan. Oh, excuse <laughs> me. Nepotistically featuring her son with Dennis Quaid and music by her then current boyfriend John Kell- John Mellencamp, who was John Cougar Mellencamp. I remember the days when he was John Cougar Mellencamp, and I yeah. did not realize he'd gone on to marry Meg Ryan. I, I 
I think it was boyfriend only. I don't think they ever wed one another. Okay, uh, okay. Um, and that was before Prince became the indecipherable symbol, <laughs> the artist formerly known as Prince. Wait a second, so Prince married Meg Ryan? I, <laughs> this story gets interesting. <laughs> this is why some people might not want to listen to the program, because we're like <laughs> Google. We give bad information. Anyway, he's another writer. And then Christopher McQuarrie, who, of course, made his name writing. I didn't realize this. The Usual Suspect. The Usual Suspect. Great script. I do kind of feel if you, if you can put The Usual Suspects on your screenwriting CV, you kind of have nothing to yeah. prove. That's it. Yeah. And then apparently he wrote some of the Mummy films and some Impossible Missions. Then he wrote Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Um, which is not without merit, which is why I was suggesting maybe we discuss that <laughs> film instead. Uh, but then he wrote and co-wrote... Uh, I call it dead on arrival reckoning, not dead reckoning, but dead on arrival <laughs> reckoning. Ouch. I'm being harsh. Cast, Tom Cruise, Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg, Haley Atwell. I don't know if she's she's sort of being introduced into the franchise Looks here. like it. Rebecca Ferguson, Vanessa Kirby, and Isai Morales as the bad non-white guy. <laughs> Gotta have those evil dudes. Um, okay. Let's start with the... We're, it's not going to take long to get to the spoiler bill, I don't think. Um Bering Sea, a Russian sub full of presumably bad guy English-speaking Russian sailors. <laughs> I think have you have you not seen Hunt for Red October? They're clearly Russians speaking Russian. Oh, really? Thanks to the magic of cinema, it sounds oh, English. It changes. Yeah, it's. Uh, I I always get a little disturbed. I mean, put it in Russian these days. I mean, people can read three minutes of subtitles of really simple things like torpedo coming. <laughs> Stop it, sir! Fire counter torpedoes, whatever. Um, their, it's their own missile that's been commandeered by an entity that was never really there. That's about all you need to know about this film, because the next installment sort of promises to take us right back to the submerged sub to recover from uh, the entity and to take us, uh, you know, to recover the more important technology. This sub goes down. Ethan Hunt of the Impossible Mission Force is tasked with terminating Lisa. She's a former uh, work partner of his and I think romantic partner. Again, I haven't seen the, the preceding uh, installments of the series. So I'm, I'm going to stop you now because it's Ilsa. Oh, Ilsa. Ilsa, Ilsa, not Lisa. Yeah, um, easy mistake to make. And, so, and she's been in like probably at least three of these Mission Impossible films okay. before. And mm. I think I think there's always been, you know, just a tiny amount of romantic tension, but nothing more than that. I think they are. I think it's it's purely platonic. And I want to apologize for the Lisa thing. I don't have my glasses <laughs> on. And it's that uppercase I, which is just a, like a big L. And then another uppercase I. Jeez. I'm going to make my font bigger as we speak. Okay. Um, she's in Saudi Arabia. She's come into possession of half. This is going to sound familiar half of the key that he and his superiors need in order to deem their uh mission possible uh before he can say i will not refuse the call i accept it the message actually self-destructs and he's in i thought that only happened in the movies but i guess this is a movie so it happens happens in all the the movies it literally it literally self-destructs so as you can tell i'm a novice here i think we should ring that bell but i would say that I don't know that we need a spoiler film because this, or spoiler bell, because this film does a pretty good job of spoiling itself. <laughs> well, I mean, if you've seen the trailer, you've seen the movie. More or less. Or if you've seen other movies, <laughs> you've seen this movie. <laughs> let's ring the bell anyway, because I spent all this money Please. on it. Go on, let's ring the bell. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounded good. That's the, the sound of something being spoiled. <laughs> um, Jimmy, I'm just going to have you talk, talk your way through this with me because... Um, 
This was a difficult, difficult film for me. It, it clocks in at what was this two forty three? Yeah, two like hours that? and three quarters. There's a lot of movie there. I mean, are there, un, you know, as always, how rare is it when you and I say the movie could have been longer? I can't remember us <laughs> ever saying that, but I think yeah. pretty much every, no. every week we say, "Oh, it would have been nice if it was a bit shorter." This one could have been a lot shorter, especially when we're we're assuming the next one's going to be two plus hours as well. You're looking at five hours of these two films. Mm. The next scene kind of, for me, it kind of spoiled it so early on. So that's the opening. That's really the, and it's not the first act or anything like that. We need to bring the spoiler bell. It's probably the first, what, 10 or 20 minutes at most. He's out of um, Saudi Arabia um, after recovering Ilsa or, or eliminating Ilsa, possibly. Um, all of the cheeses of the important U.S. intelligence agencies sort of gather in this one room. There's one woman there. She's seductively displayed on a chaise longue. Everyone else is a man. Um, and they're all briefing the biggest cheese of all. It's uh, Carrie Elwes, whose book, As You Wish, I don't know if you've read this, about it's about the making of The Princess Bride, oh. uh, is excellent. That's a good read about filmmaking. So I just wanted to plug his book there. Maybe Carrie will contact us, as Tom Hanks did recently when he talked about his books. I did it. I got Tom Hanks in the first 10 minutes or something. Oh, well done. The algorithm will, will praise you for that. Uh, this scene is, this was so well rehearsed, and I think this is probably necessary to these films, so I'll have you comment on that, but no one needs to complete a sentence because all the leaders take turns finishing each other's sentences, and it's this example of really heavy-handed, what I call exposition as well as prediction. Like they're sort of telling you the past story, but also telling you the future story. And they're all sort of just perfectly, it's so rehearsed. They're just perfectly finishing sentences. So they're all one brain kind of in this U.S. military um, intelligence center. I, I would like to imagine that the U.S. security forces um, you know, are exactly like that, that all these meetings, everyone decides they're going to get one sentence and they all yeah. decide what order they're going to say their one sentence in and they all recite them out at about the yeah. same tone and the same speed. Oh, as well. That's what a perfect briefing should be, absolutely. And uh, I think this is probably a problem for this kind of franchise where the, the viewers of the first film are now either suffering from memory loss or early onset <laughs> dementia. So the past points of importance need to be repeated, and what is about to happen should also be explained all at the same time. Um, so can you help me out? Because, again, I haven't seen any of the episodes. Is that kind of part of the franchise is that you, you sort of have to regurgitate what's already happened to remind people of where they are in the larger arc of the Mission Impossible story. Well, see, I don't think any of that stuff they're talking about there in that scene is relevant to any of the previous movies. I think it's okay. all just kind of a bit of guff, and it, it feels almost like Tom Cruise uh, and Christopher McQuarrie wanted to get their buddies in, um, uh, so they each get a line. Um, yep. And so there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who kind of turn up and they deliver one line as the head of some security service or another so that they can now say, oh, I appeared in a Mission Impossible movie. I, I think that's what that oh, wow. scene is around because I think the actual content of that scene is utterly irrelevant to the previous yeah. films and the current one. It's a, it's a kind of a ludicrous scene. Um, and and uh, yeah, you could wear your earplugs all the way through it. Um, and miss nothing, I think. Yeah, it's 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 not a short scene. I'm sure the way they write these films, the way these mm -hmm. films are written, um, is that they think of six great set pieces, and then get a, like yeah. a tiny little bit of connecting thread to, oh, yeah. to to string them all together. A little bit like putting beads on a chain. Um, yeah, and and you know the, the material of the, the connecting thread is um, of the fairly poorest quality. Yeah, so they've put a huge amount of effort into filming some beautifully choreographed, stunningly shot 
action sequences. Yep. And then, you know, there's a little rest when you could either go and buy an ice cream or go and go to the bathroom or maybe even go out and sit in an air-conditioned car. And you're kind of missing <laughs> very little, I think. I think the whole point of the film, and I'm going to say now... Uh, weirdly I, you, you know how low lowbrow i am i sat and smiled through most of this film and really enjoyed <laughs> it but um not from the point of view of character development or plot but from the point of view of enjoying some uh electrifying fun enthusiastically filmed set pieces and then i think you can more or less switch off in between them so um so yeah i, I wasn't paying an enormous amount of attention to the fine finer points of the plot and i didn't think you're <laughs> supposed to so I shouldn't be looking for expert writing or serious storytelling. The more attention you pay, the less sense it makes. Aha. Uh-huh. So you could actually probably, this is one of those film, films you could probably turn the volume down and just <laughs> yeah. watch. I mean, yeah, if you watch the whole thing in Russian without any subtitles, it will probably be at least as enjoyable. Or time it perfectly to Pink Floyd's uh, The Dark Side of the Moon and see what happens. <laughs> you'd have to well, listen, you'd be listening to Pink Floyd probably four or five times to get through this film. Um, little do we know, but Ethan Hunt is in the room. He's got this beautiful latex mask that disguises him. Um, and I found that the character of Kittredge, his uh, handler, is quite caricaturish. But again, maybe that's the point. Um, Ethan sort of goes rogue. Um, he seems to do this often, um, which by now you'd think maybe he's not the best man for the job if he's constantly going rogue. But anyway, <laughs> he, he goes on the hunt for the – he's got the, the match of the half key. And he ends up getting the, the half key that he needs. Um, and he enjoys uh, the company of buddies Bing, Bing Rames and Simon Pegg, who are obviously part of his, his, his crew. I don't know how long term they've been on the crew, but yes, many many movies. I think Ving Rames has been it for like yeah, probably six movies or something like that. Wow. I think. Good paycheck, just a regular paycheck of a big yeah. thing. Uh, there's a scene of getting the key in an airport in Abu Dhabi, where Grace, who's a really good. Uh, thief, but less veteran, I guess, than uh, the spy, Ethan Hunt, uh, enters the story. Uh, there's a bomb that I was not so secretly hoping would explode to end the entire <laughs> film. It does not detonate due to some excellent wordplay work from the crack team of Impossible Mission <laughs> Force. It's all about word games and wordle and crosswords, and they're good. Um, and they also make latex very quickly. <laughs> and then, before we know it, everyone ends up in Venice. Um, there's the bad guy who's Gabriel, the... Um, Isai Morales character, um, with whom Ethan has a history. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grace is the new the new person on the scene, the the thief that they encounter in Abu Dhabi. Luther Benji of the Mission Impossible theme, um, and all these incompetent American agents actually lose them all in the airport, but then end up in Venice um, very easily and very quickly, and they're all joined by some bumbling Italian cops. <laughs> So you know what's coming next. An <laughs> overly long multi-phase car, truck, scooter, micro-fiat subway chase that, as you said, I think was kind of pointless, aimless. It's an unnecessary dagger in the story, but I think it's what it's all about. As you said, this is, these are sort of big um, set-piece films, very visually stimulating, eye candy, but um, I didn't make a lot of sense of the story. So I am suspending disbelief. I'm also suspending intelligence to a certain extent because I've got to watch this film. Um, you can't make these films without crashing motor vehicles. And I thought, poor Venice, one of the beautiful cities in the world, just recovering from the COVID uh, pandemic and such. And boy, <laughs> there are just cars. The entire police force has been wiped out. 
uh, vehicle by vehicle. Um, I think there's a deep-seated public service announcement here. Never leave the cars in your unattended vehicle because people are just sealing each other's vehicles left and right. <laughs> and I've got to ask you, Jimmy, I've never been there. Is there a Coliseum in Venice? <laughs> Because I, but by my calculation, they may have driven all the way to Rome from Venice in the chase scene. But is, uh, there's a Colosseum at the end of the scene, and I don't think it's the Venetian Colosseum. Tell me. But I, I think it's because they, they start out in Venice yeah. and then – no, or no, they start out in Rome and then they go to Venice after, I think. I think it's all Venice. I think they just plugged the Colosseum in there to I, <laughs> get the postcard picture in. We'll talk about that later, but I think that's what happened. I mean, I was Googling Venice Coliseum, and of course the Roman Coliseum comes up again and again. No, Venice Coliseum. If, if you were going to build a Coliseum in Venice, you would have to make it out of balsa wood or something, wouldn't you? It's something, <laughs> I, you know, a large stone structure is not going to cut it in Venice, is it? It's going to have to be something that floats. Exactly. And it's got, yeah, it's got to be waterproof somehow. You can't just use cardboard. Um, so then I'll ask you to help me out a little bit with the entity it's it's in the film. It's not in the film. It's almost like an artificial intelligence, but it has control over the Gabrielle character. Um, I I would like for the entity to, to have been in this film a little bit more, a little bit more tangible, because part two is obviously when we'll get the justification of seeing part one and maybe the justification for the existence of the entity. But I couldn't get my handle on that. But the entity, entity sort of controls, it can control technology and ostensibly human behavior a little bit. Um, what was your feeling of the entity? What was it a good antagonist number one, and what the hell was it? <laughs> I wrote, you know what I wrote in my notes. I wrote the entity is a terrible name, <laughs> ugly and unpleasant word that doesn't express much. That's what good. I wrote in my notes. Perfect. Right, I mean, right. they might as well have called it the what's it, the thingamy, the 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 you know that thing. They may as well have just have called it that. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. What entity? What? No, pardon. What? Yeah. It's, I say, oh, I, you know, the entity makes me think of um, yeah, like a like a bug-eyed alien or something like that. Okay. So I think I think the idea is that it's an AI, but it's it's trapped at the bottom of the ocean because it blew up its own submarine. Oh, Although if okay. it's if you blow up your own submarine, I'm not sure how intelligent this artificial intelligence exactly. is. That seems pretty dumb, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, so the Russians had the entity. Is that what it, it was on the sub? And then, but the entity can still contact. It still has communication with Gabriel, as far as I could tell. Apparently, great Wi-Fi at the bottom of the ocean. Oh, That's man, the other thing I've learned from this that, film. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do, do like this notion that somehow you know, there's there's this kind of there's this computery program that can control the world, but there's only one copy of it. And it's controlled by a special key that splits mm -hmm. into two with LEDs on it. I mean, yeah. I think I'm, I'm going to quote something from uh, the interview with Hitchcock that I read that we will talk about when we talk oh, about good. the 59 steps. Um, how, which how is, many steps? Uh, many, the, 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 sorry, the, the, the 19 steps. <laughs> that, um, Hitchcock said um, plausibility isn't the thing, basically. And plausibility is not the thing here. Yeah, I think this film is all about enjoying time with the characters. And if you haven't seen the other six movies, then you have, haven't really bought into the characters. Yeah. And it's about the stunts. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I am disappointed that they didn't put a little bit more effort into thinking out the plot that surrounds it. But I don't think that's what they were interested in. Yeah. And I think part of the part of the the kind of confusion and ambiguity of not really establishing who the antagonist is or what the rules are or how it works yeah. is the filmmakers telling the audience, you know, we don't care about this, so we won't expect you to either. Yeah. Um, hey, look, we're crashing a car. I think that's how it works. Yeah. Um, you know, the notion that there is one 
one computer program that controls the world, but it's you know no one has is able to copy it or get their own version. Or I mean, I feel like if you've never heard of Napster, um, you know, the digital information can now be can be copied. Uh, yeah. this is a strange thing to base your story on, but I th- I think you know I think you simply have to go with it as being some kind of malevolent big bad. Yeah, and, and don't ask questions. That's so what this, I took home from it. Okay, and so this non-entity entity actually needs the other half of the key in order to take over the world and such. The non-entity entity, that's good. That's yes. good. Now I understand why they called it the entity, because we could pun on the non-entity. Yes, it is. It's, it's ironic. <laughs> um, there's this big party in Venice where it's invitation only, but everyone ends up at this palace party <laughs> where Ethan comes into contact with age-inappropriate love-hate-hug-beat female foil number three in the form of <laughs> Vanessa Kirby's The White Widow, who also needs the key and all that it represents. So there's three women circling around um, Ethan's entire team, as well as Gabriel. They're all kind of friendly. You'd think there'd be a little bit more just direct violence and killing of one another, but they're kind of friendly in, in trying to outwit one another and get this other half of the key. Some people have it, some people don't. It moves around from pocket to pocket at one point. Um, then there, I think what drove my wife off was the violence. It gets pretty violent. Um, I don't know about Chekhov's rule when you talk about samurai swords, but (laughs) I think that the sword should be swung around and hitting people. It doesn't. Um, it's handled by Paris, who's this sort of psychopathic, uh, agent who aligns herself with, um, Gabriel. Um, and Ethan, they're in this, very, very narrow brick alley, and uh, Ethan is duking it out with her and uh, uh, a goon on her side. Actually, it's the White Widow's goon, I believe. I think she's actually sort of working for several people. But anyway, um, Ethan doesn't kill her when he has the chance, and we have to remember that because the entity did and foretells that she will betray uh, Gabriel by saving Ethan's life later. So we have to know about that. But we already knew Ethan was never going to die, didn't we? I mean, Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Of course. Um, I'll speed up towards the end a little bit because it's climactic, of course. It's a big moment, but it's not, it doesn't, uh, I guess, uh, tie all the loose ends together in classic denouement uh, fashion or untie, I guess. Denouement is untying, I believe. Anyway, that's a linguistic (laughs) thing. Um, White Widow has the key, um, but Grace will impersonate her through very good latex work in order to get the complementary second half of the key. So these two halves of the key... Um, it all involves Tom jumping onto a runaway train from a parachute drop from one of the taller Alps, as far as I could tell. Uh, <laughs> he ascends on a motorbike, well, because he just has to do that. Harrison Ford did something, and he's twice as old as Tom Cruise, so that's the justification for that. Uh, in a very subtle move, the train is scheduled to pass over a high-altitude detonating bridge after Tom battles various bad and not-so-bad guys in the requisite knife, gun, fist fight atop the train while kindly ducking and alerting combatants to forthcoming head injury <laughs> hazards along the way. I feel like I saw that scene within the last month, maybe two months. Um, <laughs> yep. The train, surprise, surprise, drops car by car slowly into the abyss as Grace and Ethan together move towards safety in a violent yet erotically charged passage from car to car. Um, I was pleased to see the chefs on the train just continue to cook for the passengers, even as, <laughs> even as this train was headed toward doom in this far below river, I guess. It's professionalism. Uh, These guys are professionals. It was amazing. I, lo- I love that commitment to uh, culinary arts. Um, 
Gabriel jumps to safety only to realize he doesn't have the key, and we're off to, uh, I think the last images show you that submarine, and we know that we're going to the Bering Sea to finally see, ooh, I like that, to finally see the entity. <laughs> to see what we can see, yes. Wow. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I'll start with my first thought. Um, this is just classic, shameless, capitalistic filmmaking. They've got intellectual <laughs> property, right? They're milking the resource for all it's worth. Uh, it's. I thought it was ironically unadventurous for an action film. There's nothing really new or interesting in the storytelling, and you've you've spoken eloquently on that. Um, but capitalism requires big money. Two hundred seventy million dollars. You said mm, two hundred ninety-one. I read two hundred ninety-one. Yeah. It's about big money making more big money, and there are no new ideas. They're just sort of doing the same crap we keep doing, and it's not moving the art form or even the genre forward. Um, and it just seems like a waste of resources. I just see all that money going into this film, and it's the definition of late-day capitalism. So I don't want to be too negative, though. What, what? <laughs> oh, no, I wouldn't say you've been negative at all. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> that been that very seems even-handed. Like, that seems like the justification for making of the film is just to make more money on, on a, you know, it's a proven winner. It's going to make money worldwide. $500 million is nothing to... Shake a stick at. Although when you spent two hundred ninety million dollars, actually, yeah. you know, once you've once you've spent your money on your prints and your ads, yeah. it's, it starts to eat into that exactly um, those, those hoped for profits. Yeah. I think so. This film, I think this film is all about the set pieces, and I yeah. personally really enjoyed the set pieces. But okay. I agree, they aren't that new. Even to mm -hmm. the extent that I started writing down what the set pieces were, because the film starts as Hunt for Red October. Yep. Um, and then it becomes, you know, Call of Duty with its kind of video game um, desert shootout. Then it yeah. becomes Die Hard 2 yeah. when they have like a big race through the airport. You know, and then it becomes the Italian job when they have a tiny car going through Rome. Yep. Um, you know, and then it becomes, well, arguably the 39 steps with a bit of yeah. excitement on a steam train. And finally, um, the uh, I think this, there is a fun big set piece which i did not expect to see which is that as the train very slowly plops off the edge of the the blown up bridge one carriage at a time yeah um tom cruise and Haley will have to make their way up through these vertical train carriages before they fall off the end i did not expect to see that and that was great yeah. fun but that was done terribly well in a sony video game called uncharted 2 oh. about sort of 10 or 15 years ago um so you know it, it has Joy, joyfully lifted um, a whole bunch of great set pieces from preceding artistic works, but it strung them together in a very entertaining two hours and three quarters. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I got to the end and I'd had a good time um, and I had enjoyed watching um, Tom Cruise kind of do the same thing as in the last film and the film mm -hmm. before and the film before. It's a lot like watching a TV series, I think. Um, and, I think this kind of explains um, a large part of this, you know, capitalist notion of making films that have to make money mm -hmm. um, in the form of episodic cinema. This, this is episodic cinema, isn't it? It becomes a very, very lavish, high budget TV series. And instead of coming out once a week, when well, it comes out once every three years or so, but um, you have uh, you know, an episode uh, with the same cast and the same characters and they're all in roughly the same place at the end of the film that they were at the start of the film. Ilsa does, spoiler alert, die during the film. But otherwise, oh. we you know, we end the movie with you know most of the same characters that we started it with. And um, 
And the big problem with episodic cinema, um, for all that it's fun and you know what you're getting, the problem is character growth. Character growth, it's, it's hard enough to do when you've got a trilogy of movies, which yeah. seems to be the only thing that will anyone will greenlit like these days. It's, you know, it's extremely hard to get character growth into the seventh movie of a series of eight movies. You know, Tom Cruise, he starts and ends the movie as just the same guy. I'm, I'm not sure the, what he has learned or how he has grown over, mm. this, over the movie. Uh, there is a character who learns stuff and grows, and it's, it's Grace. It's Hayley Atwell's character. She is new to the franchise. Um, and I personally thought she was fantastic in this. I thought she was very watchable. You know, and her character growth, maybe it's not quite earned, but, it, you know, it's not far off. I could see what they were aiming for. Um, you know, I enjoyed the time that I spent with her character. And I think the, mo the my standout moment from the film um, is comes towards the end when you know, Hayley Atwell has gone from being this, you know, very competent pickpocket who's... Uh, not really aware of the massive racket that she's getting herself into. And towards the end of the film, um, she has to try and stop this runaway steam train. Um, and she realizes, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, climb over from this carriage into the, the carriage in front of me. And there's this tiny little character moment where she ties her hair back, uh, which is like the one moment. It's, it's like a man rolling up his sleeves, um, you know, or kind of straightening your collar or whatever. It's like it's the, the moment that she realizes you know, uh, oh, oh no, I'm going to have to do this. Oh, I'm going to have to take it seriously. This is way out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to rise to the occasion. It's, you know, so I think it's a really lovely bit of physical acting, really impressed itself on me. Um, I think that's my favourite moment of the film. I think she is my favourite character in the film, much though, as you well know, mm. um, I I will go a, you know, a little bit um, uh, non-critical at anything that stars Tom Cruise because I find him tremendously watchable. But yeah, you know, Hayley Atwell is the, is the reason I think to watch this film. I think she's you know great in it, given the material that she's offered, and I'm looking forward to seeing her in more, you know, crazy shootout pickpocketing uh, adventures with the the non-entity entity. Um, I thought I enjoyed her. There's a bit of uh, passing of the torch, or perhaps passing of the key, mm. in this film. Maybe she's going to be in you know, future episodes. Obviously, obviously, she's joining the team. Um, I had so many flashbacks of Dial of Destiny. And I just felt like our destiny has been dialed in for us. We're going to see more and more of this. Um, the fight on the train, the setup of the new female character to sort of carry on parts yes, of the franchise. Yeah. Uh, the two parts of absolute Luddite technology needed to be reunited to unlock some greater force of human engineering <laughs> that has the potential to change the entire planet forever. Um, and all, all it, of course, taking place between one continent and the next, or even the next one after that. Uh, there's a lot of skipping and world tripping. And these films, like the Bond films, they this is part of their nature, this world tripping thing. And I'm thinking one of the reasons is just instant audience expansion. Um, you're sort of stretching the, the parameters of Aristotelian story world, space and time, but we're constantly cutting back between stories. Um, from one continent to another, we're going. We're in Saudi Arabia. We're in the United States at one point. We're in uh, uh, Abu Dhabi. We moved to Italy. Then we're all of a sudden heading towards. Is it Austria that the train is going somewhere in the mm. Alps? Um, and I think it's in part. It's just it's like pandering to the worldwide audience. Like if you see your country on screen, if the Romans see their Colosseum, even though it's supposed to be in Venice, oh, they still <laughs> want to go see the film, right? Uh, so I think it's just actually chasing an international market quite intelligently, or, um, and intentionally, I guess. I don't know how intelligent. It is. It's really just uh, trying to reel in more customers all around the world. I think, given given modern film act, film production, I think um, 
one big motive behind shooting your film on several continents or in several countries is that you can claim tax breaks from a number of different governments. I think that's probably part of the motivation there. And I I see it in lots of pictures these days, and and you're absolutely right. And I just thought immediately of Werner Herzog, um, because in Aguirre, Wrath of God, he's right next to Machu Picchu. He does not feature Machu Picchu, and he's filming right across the valley from Machu Picchu. And Klaus Kinski, his uh, partner in crime and the star of the film, says, hey, why aren't you putting Machu Picchu in the background? He says, you know, and of course it's Werner. High, high-minded Werner Herzog. He's not making postcard picture-making, but a lot of this feels <laughs> like postcard picture-making. And um, it also just it just seems very sane to me. I felt like it's just avoiding any good storytelling because there's just so much emphasis on action. And I, I can do a minute or two of an action scene. I cannot do a 15-minute film sequence through the streets of Venice with just car crash after car crash and changing vehicles and subways crashing. It's just, to me, it's just mind-dumbing. I cannot, I can't, I can't do it. So again, I'm not the audience for these films, so I have a hard time seeing anything uh, redeemable in them. And, and there's just so many rules that are broken. I thought there were just all these antagonists, and none of them are particularly evil. And one of the most important one, I can't even understand. Um <laughs> The entity like is supposed to carry this film through five hours of, of theater uh, going cinematic, cinematic experience, and I have no idea what the, the entity is after watching two hours and 45 minutes, and, and I'm, not, I'm not scared of it. It's at the bottom of the Bering Sea. It's looking for a key on the surface <laughs> of the planet. <laughs> I don't feel I don't I didn't feel threatened. I th- felt threatened by a lot of the violence, and I think that's in part why my wife left the film. Is that there's just tons and tons of violence in this film, and maybe I'm just getting too old to really give too much um, uh, leeway to the filmmakers. But you know, people are having their heads bashed against brick walls, and then two or three minutes later, they're back up for the fight. And you can <laughs> you can speak to this from a medical perspective, but there's a lot of stuff that people wouldn't survive, or they would have been hospitalized, but. I guess these are sort of lower level superheroes. They don't—they're not necessarily invested with uh, supernatural powers, but they don't seem to die very easily. And honestly, I think that the difficulty in killing someone should be much more emotional and mental and psychological. It shouldn't be hard to kill someone physically in this day and age. And they're just—you know—they're they're making these people fight more and more and more for for less and less reason. I think. So I, I think the violence is also off-putting for me. But I think we just—we just. We just we just accept that in films and American films in particular, but probably worldwide. I mean, some of the some of the Indian films uh, I've seen lately are very violent, and see the Asian films mm-hmm. are also there. But I think the Americans have sort of got the market on it and passed that legacy along. It's, it's, it's um, probably appropriate they drive past the Colosseum because this is gladiatorial combat, isn't it? Yeah. We, we like to see blood. It's been you know, this case for two thousand years. I think yeah. the other way that these films live and die um is on gags uh i think when an action film really succeeds um it's it's been seeded with great gags and i was kind of disappointed um that there are too few gags in this film Mm -hmm. i mean some of the previous mission impossible films there have been some really good gags and you know um, they've managed to hit that tone just right and i think there weren't quite enough good gags in this movie. There's two that I wrote down in my notebook. Um, one, uh, which which I cannot get out of my head, is when um, Hayley Atwell uh, realises that she has somehow been co-opted into this elite team of international agents, and they're yeah. trying to persuade her that she needs to be the one who's going to put on the latex mask and pull off this massive heist. And she was saying, I was assuming that you were just going to 
you know, dump me back on the streets, uh, tell me to forget about all, the whole thing and give me some walking about money. And I, this, the sheer phrase, walking about money, that's yeah. fantastic. I'm going to use that in, in conversation as often as possible. Certainly next time I'm trying to negotiate an improvement in my wages, walking about money <laughs> is exactly what I'm going to ask for. I'm going to get it written down in my contract. Um, and the other thing that did make me laugh, the other gag that I noted was just um, when you have this kind of big set piece car chase in, I think it is Rome. You know, I don't think any of that no. is in Venice. I think they have a punch up in Venice, but I think they are driving around Rome. And these two, these two cities are in the same country. They're probably pretty closely connected, aren't they? Um, when he was driving around Rome um, with Hayley Atwell, uh, just his, his expressions as she crashes her car into, or their car, into yeah. so many other bystanders, you know, when he knows that he could drive it better. And it's kind of, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's uh, non-vocal mansplaining of him trying to persuade her. Oh, I, I should drive. No, don't do that. Oh, no, no. Uh, 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 um, gear up yeah. um that did make me laugh that kind of quite masculine frustration at a woman driving but yes. overall um not enough gags in this film and you know what in i think those are one of the easiest faults to fix you can always write more gags you can chuck money at a script and get a few funny people to come up with you know a dozen gags each yeah. Shoot them all, see which ones work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it should not be hard to polish up a f script with a few gags these days. Presumably, that's why Simon Pegg uh, is there. And if anybody wants to ask us to polish their script up with some gags, yeah. you and I would be delighted any time. Uh, I think there's no excuse for a film not having enough gags. Yeah. Uh, it's five hour thirty nine minute drive from Italy from Venice to Rome. 326 miles. That's not even enough time to watch this film twice. They're so <laughs> close. <clears throat> oh, wow. Um, what, uh, what, what, what would you say, if you had to explain to somebody who hadn't seen the film, yep. uh, what would you tell them is the theme of this film? What is the theme? What is the underlying message? Ooh. Well, <laughs> money. Money makes money. I think that's sort of <laughs> outside the film. I think the, the underlying message is just... Keep punching and kicking and shooting and <laughs> sword fighting with people and eventually you'll get your way or you'll get the key. You'll get half of the key. <laughs> Mission Impossible, colon, just keep punching. Yeah. I, Something I must like say, I, there is a scene kind of, you know, reasonably early in the film, the Die Hard 2 scene where um, they are pursuing this key from pocket to pocket through yeah. a Saudi Arabian airport. Yeah. Um, and Simon Pegg is distracted by a possible nuclear bomb, which he has to defuse <laughs> using word puzzles. Um, and uh, and one of the word puzzles is something like, um, you know, what's the, the one thing that's most uh, precious to you or what's uh, the one thing you don't want to lose, whatever. And he said, oh, I, I don't know, my friends. friends. And I thought, you know, that, you know, that is the theme of the movie, isn't it? Oh. Actually, you know, the theme, I think the theme they are trying to state is, and one of my personal favorite themes for any movie and one which I've used many times, which is just no man is an island. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that is what they are trying to express. And you get, um, you know, you get a bit of kind of, you know, buddy time with Tom and his spy kind of friends. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and they're kind of you know, welcoming Hayley Atwell into the into the friend group. Mm hmm. And you know, and they get to have like you know a little hug on a rooftop over over the the Doge's palace. You know, and it, this is, I think, I think the film is trying to say, you know, that friendship is important, mm. although it has a funny way of saying it. 
you know, and, and arguably, well, maybe the entity is the the antithesis of this idea because you know what? It's all it's it's all alone at the bottom of uh, at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, a little bit like you know the, the teenage boy alone in his bedroom. It's you know it, it's it's telling you get out and make some friends, isn't it? Yeah. I think I think that's what they're aiming for. Did they succeed? I don't know, but you know I think I enjoyed it a bit more than you did. You did for sure. Um, <laughs> that's a lovely interpretation. I think you're very generous. <laughs> that's why I'm happy to count you as my friend. <laughs> it's all about friendship. Friendship is magic. Um, I tell you what, I, yeah. you may find this difficult to believe, but I reckon. Mm-hmm. There might be some <laughs> reasons to phone. It's not the cliche squad this week. I think we sh- it should be the cliche SWAT team. Oh, I like that. Um, who come in with helicopters and, uh, and and high velocity rifles? Please, uh, but shall me. we shall we call the cliche SWAT team? Please, cliche SWAT. Now, th- I mean, there are a whole bunch of cliches here that I'm happy to call tropes. Yeah, uh, so so you know. It, it's it's secret agents. It's computer yep. hacking. It's yep. kind of government agencies double crossing their employees. Kind of all of that, you know. And they are all cliches, but they're kind of so so fundamental to the kind of film that it is. That I'm sort of happy to give them a pass. Mm. But there there were also cliches which were just cliches with a capital C. Yep. And one of them you've already talked about, which is um, somewhere it is written that wherever. There is a scene that happens on a train. Yes. There has to be a fight on the roof of that train. Yes. And all the people in the fight must duck down every few seconds to avoid <laughs> being hit by overhead signals or tunnel ceilings. In fact, watching this yeah. film and then Dial of Destiny in short succession, I now understand why Americans are largely suspicious of public transport. Because every time you see a train in an American film, people end up on the roof having to duck down and get their heads knocked off. Yeah, people fighting on top of a moving train. That's my number one cliche on this list. Um, it's not just that they do it. It's that they do it competently and with great fluidity and grace, and it's impossible. I think it's just physically impossible. So it has definitely become a cliche. And I think just having seen Dial of Destiny, what was that, two or three films back that we yeah. uh, that we looked at that film? I think it was just, and you know, this Tom Hanks. Uh, Tom Hanks. Ooh, ooh, did I just mention Tom Hanks' name? Tom, I did. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks will never do this. Tom Cruise is considerably younger than Harrison Ford, and I don't know to what extent, you know, they did their own stunts or their own green screen work here, but um, uh, I think if if Harrison Ford can do it in June, then then (laughs) Tom Cruise has to be able to do it in July and August. It's only fair. The other cliche I noted down in my list um, is movie parties. This is kind of party Mm. that you see in movies where there are beams of light flashing around into the sky. And there are podia that have nude dancers. This seems to be like every movie party that I ever see and zero actual parties. Or at least I I have never been invited to a party like that. Nor have I. (laughs) I think either we should do something about that or these parties do not exist. They only exist in films, but they seem to exist in kind of every film. Yeah. Um, I don't know where they're getting their new dancers, but there's got to be some nights where they, there's a shortage of podia. So many of these parties going on. How many podia are there that you can hire for a night? <laughs> and why are they always inviting these people who are going to be ne'er-do-wells? I mean, <laughs> you just know that there's going to be trouble. Don't invite them. Don't invite those guys. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, bumbling cops. 
Yeah. And there's a little, I hated that the Italians were seemingly the most bumbling, but the, I'd like, I like it when we see incompetent American intelligence agents, because that seems like something I want to believe, but um, it always <laughs> just makes these seems much more conveniently. Yeah, they're, I mean, you're, sort of the storylines are more convenient, because they are, uh, they are being pursued by law enforcement, but they're always a little bit smarter, and <laughs> the, the cops just happen to be a lot dumber, so... I think that's just overdone throughout. And I think I've mentioned this within the last three or four episodes, so I won't linger on it too long. So at the end of the day, um, yeah. uh, Mission Impossible, colon, Dead Reckoning, colon, part one. <laughs> I, I I think we were both agreed this film is kind of dumb as a box of rocks, but there's things you can do with rocks. And I, you know, I personally Ooh. don't mind rocks. I, I would quite <laughs> happily put this rockery in my garden and enjoy it. I mean... Um, yeah, idiotic, dumb, fun. Yeah, and appeal to late stage capitalism. Yeah, but I, uh, I did not walk out. I largely enjoyed it. Yeah, I would say for me, the Rolling Stone is less interest than the still less interesting than the still one that gathers moss and provides some <laughs> life with just little bits of earth and maybe a tree or a fern growing out of it. The Rolling Stones that gather no moss just they don't stick with me. This is not a film that I'm going to think about philosophically for even one minute or one second after I leave the theater. But um, I think your, your rock analogy is good. I like that. <laughs> Rocks, we have rocked out. Well, should we should we have a break? Please, and uh, let's let's have a break and try and recover some of our humanity. <laughs> um, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, talk about the indeterminate number of steps directed yes. by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> Funny, this one got bumped by the Granny Tess sponsorship oh. a long while ago, yeah. And then I just wasn't sure this was the right sponsorship for us. But this potential sponsor persisted. So I'll give it a go. We'll look uh, to some feedback from the uh, TRCC community to right, okay. decide whether these guys are for <laughs> us. But um, sadly, when most of us think of male enhancement, we don't think <laughs> of intellectual or educational or emotional pursuits that make us more tolerant, compassionate, and thoughtful, sentient beings. And, and thereby more attractive, I would say. No, we think more about impotence. <laughs> we have all heard more than enough about erectile dysfunction. But what about erectile hyperfunction? <laughs> From our new friends at Down Dicton comes Flaccid X. <laughs> Are you a person with a penis with persistently pestering petrified private parts? Or are you the partner of a person with a penis with persistently pestering petrified private parts? If yes, then Flacidex may be the curative just for you. We here at uh, TRCC don't like to intervene in the pharmaceutical wars. However, from personal experience, I have to say beware of the dangerous generics dismember not a good idea and lesser member the results were not good not so with flaccid x the safe alternative to erectile hyperfunction no more uncomfortable staff meetings troubled by one extra member at the table no more awkward fake stretching sessions at inopportune moments no more discomfort when talk of penises comes up. And no more need to wear loose-fitting clothing or donning extra layers uh, when temperatures don't call for it. <laughs> if any of that sounds familiar, then no more worries. But clearly, 
Flaccid X is not for everyone. Consult your doctor. Jimmy, you and I have talked about penises on more than one occasion. but <laughs> Yes, far too often, you're right. M- mostly in a safe and screenwriterly way, right? <laughs> Side effects may include decreased blood pressure, death, disintegrating <laughs> penis syndrome or DPS, dizziness, painful urine streams, and permanent erections. Go figure. <laughs> Flaccid X for the rest of us. You know what I think? I think now, basically, you are showing off. <laughs> but I don't want to. That's the point. I don't want to show off. Uh, and, and we are back. I over, So over the break, uh, yeah. um, I have checked exactly how many steps it is. It is definitely 39 steps. Yes. Um, so uh, we are going to talk about, uh, yeah. I, I would say, the proto Mission Impossible. This is the 39 steps from yeah. 1935. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, supposedly the film which was considered um, the summation of all the work he had done in the UK before he then went over to work in the States, to work in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, based on the book by John Buchan, mm-hmm. uh, written by Charles Bennett, who also uh, worked on forest, Foreign Correspondent, the Hitchcock picture. He wrote The Lost World in 1960. He wrote uh, the Wild Wild West TV series. He wrote The Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea TV series, mm-hmm. which I do vaguely remember from when mm-hmm. I was a child, which also, I feel, ties into Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Yeah. Um, and uh, and also as uh, a script credit by Ian Hay, he was more of a novelist than a playwright, and I'd know nothing about his work. I did, however, read the Thirty Nine Steps a few years ago. Have you read the Thirty Nine Steps? Did you read I've the book? Not. I've seen there was a production in the West End, so I saw a play version, and I think there's some kind of remake, possibly for British television in nineties, early two thousands, and then. Um, I thought I saw a series out there, so it's it's definitely been milked for yeah. what it can be. But I've never read the book. Is it a yeah. like a long book, or is it like a it's spy a, novel, or what? It's a really short book, actually. Um, yeah, it's it's a very short book, and it, uh, there's not an awful lot from the book that has made it into the film. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so the the book was published in 1915. Yeah. Um, in the book, Hannay, the protagonist, was from Rhodesia. Oh. Which which means as a, as a modern reader, exactly, yeah. you already feel a bit suspicious about him before you've even started <laughs> chapter one. Um, and there there are a few details from the the Hitchcock film which which do come from the book. But um, in the in the book, the thirty nine steps of the title it refers to a real private jetty in Kent, which oh. consists of thirty nine steps down to the sea, oh. um, uh, to this kind of this little harbour where the navy secrets are going to be taken out of the country. So it's, yeah. it's largely very different. I think the title of the book and the title of the film, the thirty nine steps, is one mm-hmm. of the finest things about the about the film actually because you know it's kind of meaningless um, yeah. and yet it's you know it's a lovely phrase that sticks in the mind well, it sticks in everybody else's mind i couldn't remember what the number was but most people it sticks in the mind yeah um i i will i'll i will tell you the story but before that yeah yeah i'm guessing you want to know why i picked it do you have any other questions for me counsel i do I do. It's um. It was. I think it's a good choice. I think it's a very good choice. Um. It has that classic MacGuffin. I think the Thirty Nine Steps are kind of the MacGuffin in this film. Yeah. And it makes me think: Are the two half keys in um, Dead Reckoning, the Mission Impossible, MacGuffins? Maybe I not. Think they are absolutely. Um. 
And uh, Charles Bennett, I looked up also, it's, uh, he wrote Man Who Knew Too Much, which Hitchcock ah. made twice. It's one of those films that Hitchcock did twice. Um, Blackmail and Sabotage. So he worked with Hitchcock quite a bit, writing some of the early ones. And it's, it's amazing to me that these two films are 88 years apart. It's amazing to me that my mother, who's no longer with us, would have seen this film probably... You know, when she was seven or eight years old, she was wow. 31, you know, so I'm sure she saw this as a kid. Um, and that's just so long ago, 88 years old. And this is not really an early Hitchcock film, because I think some of his credits go back to 1916, 1920, yeah. something like that. So it's, it's really interesting in that context that this is uh, a man working 100 years before Tom Cruise and his gang. But I do, yeah, what... what you, I don't think you had seen this film. You'd read the book, but I don't think you'd seen it. So why no, I, I it? had seen it, though not oh, yeah. for okay. many years. Okay. But I, I, when I saw the trailer for Dev Reckoning, yeah. I, I, I think you can tell that that movie is a nod to the 39 Steps. Yeah. Because you know, even in the trailer, you know, there's a lot of steam train action. And mm-hmm. it's clear that there is a lengthy sequence that sees Tom Cruise and Hayley Atwell handcuffed together. Yeah. Okay. And I think those two things you know, immediately makes you think of the 39 Steps. Okay. There is no way that uh, Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise have not seen the 39 Steps. Yeah. Um, th- this film yeah. was Mission Impossible's equivalent. It was a high, high octane action thriller yeah. in 1935. Um, I think it's you know, very much the antecedent. Yeah. Ooh. Or antecedent. Yeah. Um, of of uh, of the film we've seen this year. Right. Should I tell you the story? Yeah. Let yeah. Me tell Let's you the story. I'm, I'm going to tell you the story. Um, so in the film, Richard Hannay uh, is a dashing Canadian proto Cary Grant figure. Uh, he's mm-hmm. visiting London um, and uh, he meets Annabelle, a mysterious, maybe German woman, after a panic at a London theatre during the act of Mr. Memory. Uh, so uh, she asks him, well, can I come back to your flat? Um, and Richard Hannay you know, being a man of the 20th century, he says, uh, yes, he invites her back for some fried herring, maybe a little more besides. And she tells him that she was the one who caused the panic at the theatre because she is a spy pursuing a group called the 39 Steps who are about to smuggle military secrets out of the country and who are out to kill her. Well, uh, Hannay thinks maybe this is just a paranoid fantasy, but then why are there two men waiting outside Hannay's building and calling his telephone line? And then, some hours later, Annabelle staggers into Hannay's room in the small hours with a map of Scotland in her hand and a knife in her back. So he's convinced by her story. Hannay takes the train to Scotland to find the 39 steps before the spies can win. But the body that he has left behind in his flat means he is being sought by the police on suspicion of murder. And so the rest of the film is a breathless chase through the Scottish Highlands and then back to London, featuring wily farmers, fake policemen, accommodating hoteliers, kidnapped women, and a nine-fingered man. Ooh, the missing digit, the missing link. <laughs> and it's um, it's just, it's like, it's 85 minutes, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it is so brisk. Um, and uh, still, 88 years on, uh, tremendously fun, I thought. Still fun. Um, I've done the same thing this time round that I did with the last time we watched a Hitchcock picture, which is go directly to the source. I've got the Hitchcock Truffaut book, which is a yeah. massive book. They're, they're the Truffaut interviews with Hitchcock. And you can always find something interesting uh, from a primary source. 
um, Truffaut loved and admired Hitchcock and Hitchcock was pretty relaxed talking to Truffaut. So he, um, he is you know, delighted to explain at great length his own thoughts about his own work. So I've copied down a few quotes which I thought was interesting from, from okay. their interview together. Um, Hitchcock, you know, he, he says um, the thing that he loves about Buchan's work is his understatement of highly dramatic ideas. Um, and there, there is kind of a bit of understatement in the film. Certainly it's not understatement that lives on in Mission Impossible. Hitchcock says, I worked on the scenario with Charles Bennett. And the method I used in those days was to make a tr treatment complete in every detail except for the dialogue. I saw it as a film of episodes. And that is, this is very Mission Impossible. He said, I made sure the content of every scene was very solid. So each film, each one would be a little film in itself. Mm. And, you know, this is kind of what you've ended up with, actually. So, so we have got a sequence of, you know, they're almost like a sequence of standalone little short films. Yeah. Um, he was very proud of the fast transitions, one scene leading up to the next without let up. And he says, you use one idea after another and eliminate anything that interferes with the swift pace. Some hmm. films are slices of life. Mine are slices of cake, he says. Hmm. Um, and then the final thing, which I mentioned earlier, which is uh, he said, I'm not. I feel like I should do the Hitchcock voice. I'm not concerned with plausibility. That's not a good voice. I won't do that. That's great. It's, it was nothing like it. I, was, I don't know who that was. Um, I'm not concerned with plausibility, he says. Um, that's the easiest part of it. So why bother? So, you know, he was interested in pace, impetus, but not plausibility. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the lesson that is learned is that, um, you know, if you keep the pace up, don't let the audience pause for long enough to start asking questions. Then mm -hmm. you can just keep spinning out more candy floss, and yeah. you know keep keep the keep the plate spinning. This is too many spinning analogies, but basically you keep it moving. Yeah. Um, had you seen it before? Oh, I've seen it a number of times. Yeah, I can't count, but it's I'm sure it's somewhere between five and ten times. Um, mm. I like what you just said about pace and and also this collection of uh, distinct scenes. So I have something to say on both of those. Um, there are a couple of points where Hitchcock gets action moving quickly simply by speeding up the film. I love that. It's ah. an old technique, I think. And I wish Mission Possible had speed, sped up some <laughs> scenes as well to play faster. But um, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of comic in hindsight, but uh, kind of an old trick. And the, the, I think the short film analysis is kind of relevant because I think he made a lot of short films. Like a lot of those early films that we were just talking about in the 19-teens and 20s are actually, I think, shorter films probably much less than um, even uh, 83 minutes here. Um, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just point to two scenes as being positive and negative in terms of um, this collection element. Um, there's before, you, before, you, uh, yeah. before, before you tell me about the two scenes, yeah. it seems ludicrous in an 88-year-old film, but should we ring the spoiler bell? Oh, oh, I guess so, yeah. Maybe we should. I, I think I think this film is exciting enough. Yeah, um, a, yeah. That, that it still deserves not to be spoiled for yeah. those who still oh. have not seen it. I'm going to ring it. I'm going to yeah, ring it. Yeah, yeah. There we, I feel better now. There yeah, we, and yeah. that's that's, okay, an, right, that's right. like an age-appropriate spoiler bill. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. To, yeah, the spoiler bill is certainly older than 88 years. You're right. I, I guess I just assumed that everyone has seen this film, but I shouldn't do that. Um, the first film I would talk about is this. There's this milkman escape scene where um, Henry has to dress up as the milkman, and it's a it's a great little scene. It's an interaction with a character we only see that one time. He's just kind of getting out of the building where um, the woman has been murdered. Um, and, and it is one of the few scenes which is in the book, actually. Oh, really? Mm. The, the, the reason it comes to me is that um, 
all of a sudden he's just out of the building and I think he's on the train or at the train station right after that. And this is one of those scenes that in modern cinema would have been milked. Oh, I made a little joke. <laughs> they would have been milked oh, for good. more. Like, you know, you'd see him slipping by the two bad guys and almost getting caught, but then having to run away. It was, and, and there'd be more tension. And it just happens very quickly where the, he arranges with the milkman to change, change clothes for, what, gives him five pounds or whatever, and then he's off. Um, and he gets away much too easily. So that's, I think, it is like a unique film almost in itself or, a, you know, a scene that's collected with the rest of the film. Um, but it's a little weaker than I would expect for Hitchcock. And then okay. the other scene that I would contrast is when they end up, he ends up in um, Scotland, and I think that's it's Glasgow area, and there's this wife in Scotland who sort of puts him up, and mm. she gets an entire storyline in about five minutes at most, yeah. um, where she's very uh, distrustful and suspicious of Hene when he first arrives. She starts to help him. Um, she sort of betrays her husband in the process, and then by the end, um, she's sort of yearning for that contact with an outsider and, and the excitement, because obviously her life is so boring. And Hitchcock um, just beautifully puts her entire arc within... Um, that scene. So there's a full arc, character arc and a full storyline that happens in just three to five minutes, and it's just masterfully done. So I think as a result, yeah, you do have these things that hang together as almost separate films, but some of them work better than others. There's no question about that. It's beautifully filmed, that scene with the, the Scottish kind of the, the crofter's wife, because yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, like a silent scene, isn't it? Yeah. That the farmer is saying grace and you get this little exchange yeah. where the wife spots um, the headline on the newspaper and yeah. she puts two and two together and realizes that yeah. this must be Hannah who's on yeah. the front of the paper. And then she makes eye contact with him and he kind of makes eye contact with her and his face tells her that's, you know, this, this is not the truth. You know, yeah. you can trust me. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's just a you know, beautifully set up scene. Brilliant. It's all you know, basically done in silence. This is Hitchcock, the silent filmmaker, showing his skills here. Yeah. Um, it's wonderfully done scene. Yeah, I loved it. I thought, and it really stood out to me just seeing it again. Um, then another thing I guess I'll mention next is because um, it happens a little bit. I don't want to start talking too much about Mission Impossible <laughs> yet, but it this film becomes a different film in the third act. It becomes a romantic comedy in the way that some, there's some tonal <laughs> changes in um, in Mission Impossible too. Um, it gets a little slapstick later on when um, oh is it Pamela is the name of the character? Yeah, um, she yep. and Hene are handcuffed together. They end up in handcuffs. Um, attached, and they have to pretend to be man and wife or something like that in a uh, to get into an inn. And then she's removing her stockings, which this is probably at that day and age is a very racy scene. Yeah, uh, to, oh my what, god, to dry by the fire or something like that, or warm up by the fire. Um, and it involves a sandwich too, which is tremendous. And, there, there, and I was going to mention this about Mission Impossible: not enough sandwiches. No one ever stops to eat anything. <laughs> so this one has a sandwich, which is great. Um, and the, just the the metaphor being tied together sort of brings them together. But the whole film at that point, there's a twenty. 25 minute sequence maybe where it sort of becomes this romantic comedy because they're tied together and she doesn't want to be there at first and then she finally escapes and then she decides oh he's a good guy I'm going to get back to him it's the kind of thing where I'm thinking at that point in the film you have to see guns you need to see some gunfire right there's going to be some excitement but it, it turns <laughs> into this almost third of a film almost a third act of the film is largely this sort of romantic comedy did you pick up on that did you see it have the same feeling or, or not? yeah well I see I've I was kind of watching this film with my 1935 eyes on. Yeah. And after it was over, I was trying to imagine, well, what does this film look like you know, with my 2023 eyes yeah. on? Um, where in my head, there's like another cut of the film where 
I mean, I, I agree that is a kind of, you know, a strange romantic comedy setup. But you look at it with a modern point of view and, and basically Hannah is like a sex pest, isn't he? Like, <laughs> I, in my in my head, um, Annabella, is, so she's the German woman who gets killed in Hannah's flat. We never actually see her be killed. It's just that yeah. um, she's alive and then in the next scene she's got a, a knife sticking out of her back and she staggers into Hannah's bedroom. And in my mind, there there is a cut of the film where Hannah actually is the one who kills her. We don't see the murder. We just see the oh, knife yeah. sticking out of her back. And then he goes downstairs and he confesses the crime to the first man he meets. He tells the milkman there's a dead woman in the flat upstairs. Yeah. And the milkman doesn't believe him. And Hannah thinks, I'm going to get away with this. And he goes on the run. And then he con- continues to commit a series of sex crimes as he runs away. He like he sexually assaults a woman on the train. He almost rapes a woman at the farmhouse. He Then he impersonates a local politician. Then he kidnaps a woman. Yeah. yeah they're kidnapped together and he forces her to run away away with him he forces her to check into a hotel he forces her to take her clothes off and get into bed with him yeah. it's based, basically this film is Hannah is like a you know a serial sex um <laughs> criminal you look at it you yeah. look at it with a 21st century mindset and it's yeah. utterly mad <laughs> but in 1935 it was this, this was what passed as a kind of crazy romantic kind of screwball comedy yeah. it's um yeah it's it's this kind of strange inversion Hannah is, is like the kind of the proto bond isn't he yeah, he's kind of, you know, he is womanizing. Most women who appear in the film, you know, either quite like the looks of him or they quite like the idea that he is he is getting it on with some other woman in the film. He's always, you know, he's on the move. Yeah, he's involved in this kind of serious international incident. Yep. Um, the 39 Steps is kind of I, I wrote down my note, but it is the lesson that taught cinema what a spy film is. Yeah. You know, and it's effectively being remade still again and again, even today. Yeah. And it, honestly, it feels like a practice for or an etude for North by Northwest. Yes, it isn't it? Roger Thornhill, who's this advertising guy in New York City, gets um, drawn into this international espionage chain and um, meets a woman on a train. Yeah. Um, they're kind of stuck together and, and working their way through the problems. Um there's always with Hitchcock. There's always some sort of um, climactic scene at a, a very famous location. It's uh, the, the Badlands and uh, Mount Rushmore in North by Northwest. Um, it's a bridge in Scotland here, or the theater mm. in London. I mean, it, it's as if he's he's coming back, or he's like setting the seeds for a later film. I don't know if he'd known it at the time. And those films are probably twenty or more years apart, but. Very, very similar. So I'm glad that you brought up Cary Grant because it's exactly um, uh, what this film is in a sense. It's just a, it's like a, a practice for North by Northwest, which is one. Of, I think it's one of the greatest films, period. And it's also yeah, definitely one of the great spy films. There's, uh, there are so many kind of highlights: the escape on the moors, this kind of the political yeah. hustings, um, yeah. the scene at the Croft that we talked about, the climax at the theatre, which is with you know, Hannah. He's, he's about to be arrested. It's all the game is over, but he shouts out, "What are the thirty-nine steps?" And yeah. you know that line and the way that he delivers it's just drilled into my head. It's just brilliant. It's very lean. It's really spectacular. This film is the template for the 88 years of cinema that have followed it and will continue to be the template for another, yeah. you know, another 12 at least. It'll make it to 100. And I think the, the thing I just realized is that, you know, here I was criticizing Mission Impossible for sort of doing the same thing again and again and realizing that that's exactly what Hitchcock does and did, but I guess he just does it better in my opinion somehow. <laughs> just much more subtle somehow, you know? Um, 
yeah, so it's 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 he's using those elements that he's he's just perfecting, and he he gets he really hits a high point. I think probably in the you know the fifties, some of those early sixties films as well. Hitchcock kind of comes crashing down, in my opinion, by the mid sixties, but um, he's made so many brilliant films by that point that um, that you, he yeah. can he can sort of do no wrong in my eyes in other ways. But um, I mean, he was kind of worn out by that point, I wasn't think he? So, I yeah, think, and he'd been yeah. making films for. 50 years already yes, by the yeah. 60s, which is an incredible career. Um, and he, he's also using, for better or worse, using the technology of the day. Like, I love that helicopter scene where they're searching for NA <laughs> in yes. Scotland. Um, just so funny. And then there's so many, because, um, you know, the helicopter is easily, you know, clearly pl- sort of just placed in there and, and overlaid into the scene. And it's just this really clunky looking thing that would never actually fly. But it's there. You know, it's modern. In 1935, that would be a very modern uh, look. Mm. And he's also just some, got some great filmmaking moments. There's this one moment where Pamela has been arrested and they're in the co- the cab. Henny and Pamela are, are handcuffed together in the cab. There's this wonderful shot where they, um, it's a studio shot where the cab is, the cab scene, they're leaving the cab, the camera's sort of leaving the cab and it just pulls into this amazingly, it's a real shot of driving in the Scottish hills and it's just seamless and it's amazing filmmaking when you think about it for 1935. Um, so he was he was good then. He was already a great filmmaker, and he just gets better and better. But you, you see the clunky stuff around the helicopter kind of moment, um, but then you see some beautiful camera things that he's pulling off uh, very early on. So you know, these days we think of um, CGI as being such an achievement, but it seems pretty easy compared to that one shot that <laughs> I'm talking about. Um, I I remember that shot very vividly because yeah. I rewound and watched it about four yeah, times I trying to too. spot yeah. the cut. Yes, yeah. almost impossible. It's yeah. Really technically accomplished, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing. Shot, yeah. Really amazing. Yeah, but a lot of the, a lot of the again the trademark things. He's, he sort of forces the end a little bit when the, he gets everyone into the theater for the finale, and that happens in the men who knew too much as well. So it's the same writer again, sort of just practicing for these later films. I think, um, and everyone's so calm. You know, the police have been following them around. They're they're dangerous spies in the building. Everyone's really calm. There's not quite enough uh, <laughs> tension or hysteria in the film. But I think people were probably just calmer back then and not ready to get a samurai sword and start going after each other. So um, it's a, it's definitely a film of the times, but definitely a forward-thinking film in the sense that, yeah, they may, may, he may have known already that he was going to remake something like this when he had a little bit better technology and bigger actors and, and more money and such. I do slightly hesitate to to um, hero worship at Hitchcock's altar too yeah. enthusiastically yeah. because you know it is clear we know now Hitchcock probably not a very nice man, mm, um, no. and in in the context of what we know now, it's it's clear how um, the film itself you know it it's pretty misanthropic. I think it takes you know it takes a pretty dumb dim view of you know of the Scottish dim view of the working classes in general mm. you get like the heckling audience who are trying to ruin the show you get yeah. you know the conniving milkman who can't wait to help help this guy kind of um uh you know escape from uh having a having a quick uh how's your father with this married woman you get the vulgar salesman on the the um train 
Yeah, um, it's kind of, and you know, it's obviously supposed to be extremely titillating when they're you know showing each other women's underwear on the train. I, I oh, yeah. I, you know, the, like the modern analog I could think of for that was um, <laughs> this is like you know, the, the the nineteen thirty five equivalent of the dildo fighting in um, yeah. everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really really in your face. Yeah. The farmer he was kind of money grubbing and he's taking money from anybody who will offer it, um, and he's quite happy to betray Hannah if there's a reward in it. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't take a very um, good view of the upper classes either because yeah. you know Hane goes to try and um, shelter with the professor who then you know he's got all these posh chums visiting and um, and yet the professor is a bad one and you know the sheriff who is the professor's f- friend is kind of taken in by the um, the prof and you know he's also a bad one the, the Scotland Yard that Pamela goes to none of them believe her yeah so kind of the film in general, you know, it tolerates women. It doesn't particularly have a very good view of humanity in general. Most of the people in it, you know, the, the film looks down its nose at. Yeah. But um, it's a breathless, exciting thriller and it still works. 88 years on, yeah. it still works. It still works. We should, we're, we're, we will, we've been flirting with this already, which is yeah. drawing the two films together and, you know, and they are easy to match together. But before we kind of do that, let's quickly play. Yeah. Um, Who am I? Ooh. Who am I? I'm coming in cold. I'm coming in very are cold. You, are you? I shall. I, I will. I will. Um, I, I, as always, because yeah. I'm no good at thinking on my feet, I've prepared an answer. Oh, perfect. Which is, if, if I'm anybody in these two, I, I, I wish I, I would like to be Hayley Atwell's character oh, in, uh, in this film because I just think she's extremely cool and very accomplished um, and and she has the wherewithal to demand walking about money. Oh, no. The person I am probably most like uh, is uh, in The 39 Steps, though, because Mr. Memory, who appears twice in the film, yes. he has this um, this kind of build-up man who comes along and sort of tells everybody how brilliant Mr. Yeah. Memory is. And, and you know, in both times he appears, he comes up with exactly the same hackneyed speech, trying to sound spontaneous and exciting. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, that's just like me. I When I go and see my patients before they have their anaesthetic, and I always try and sound spontaneous and genuine, yeah. and yet I know actually I'm trotting out the same speech that I've told, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients over the last few years. Um, I tell them all the same thing. Who are you? I, well, I would say as long as the audience changes, it's fine. You, if you've got good material, keep using it. <laughs> that's that's showbiz, isn't it? Yeah, as long as the audience changes, you Absolutely. can get away with it. Um, Mission Impossible, I think I'm the Simon Pegg character. Is that Benji? Oh, forget, yeah. Is that Benji? Um, Benji. I, I don't think I could do the Wordle or the Word Games <laughs> under that kind of pressure. So this is aspirational. I would like to be that kind of guy because he's fantastic when he's disarming that nuclear weapon, I was very impressed with him. I would like to have that skill. And then also when he's sort of choreographing the jump, the is it a, it's a parachute? He has a parachute. When Tom uh, Cruise is about to motorcycle right off that mountain, get on the parachute, and then just drift down beautifully to that train car, I would love to have those Simon Pegg skills because he's not given enough credit for actually choreographing that whole episode. So he's using technology, especially when he's driving, which I never do. I don't even touch my phone when I'm driving. He's got the laptop on one hand. He's got the steering wheel, kind of, and he's just doing a great job of driving and um, assisting uh, Tom Cruise's character. So uh, Benji in Mission Impossible, 39 Steps. Wow. 
the guy with just the nine fingers. I love it. This film could have been called <laughs> The Nine Digits or The Nine Fingers. Um, I loved I loved his he was just so nonchalant. He was a bad guy, very nonchalant. We passed him off as a himself off as a professor or something like that. Um, I loved this one actual interaction he had with his friend with his wife as well. There Hannah's there and the professor's wife asks, Will he be joining us? He's around dinner time, so will he be joining us? And the professor says I don't think so. <laughs> and a woman knows that they're going to try and kill Anae. It's just this wonderful, really nonchalant moment between them. So I loved that. I loved how sort of um, evil he was under this um, uh, this uh, uh, superficial goodness. Um, and I think that's my dark side. Now, you're a professor, aren't you? Do your students call you a professor? No, no. They would say teacher or um, Mr. Lorente or bad guy. <laughs> that like, guy. Hey, Mr. Bad. I'm, I'm going to call you Professor from now on. <laughs> You've earned it in my eyes. Uh, right, let's, let's, let's bring the films together then. Yeah, okay, yeah. we'll do our synthesis. We'll play our, our excessively long jingle and then see whether we can figure <laughs> out whether these two films have got anything at all in common. So, I mean, I've, I've already said I'm going to repeat myself. And you know, in a way, it's a stretch. And, and, and simultaneously, it seems obvious, I think. Mission Impossible, colon, Dead Reckoning. It is kind of a remake of The 39 Steps. It has steam trains and spies and a lengthy section that has the hero handcuffed to a female antagonist who he then wins yep. over. I mean, the films aren't the same. No. But... but they kind of are. There's, yeah, there's some closeness for sure. Um, and I think, you know, more saliently, um, the 39 Steps, is, it's, it's the proto-Mission Impossible, isn't it? The Bond-style the Bond films that have dominated, you know, so much of the last 60 years of commercial cinema, yep. they kind of begin here with this. Yep. All, all the elements of those, that kind of genre are here already. You have this kind of commanding male hero. He's over his head. He prevails through pluck and ingenuity. He travels all over the world, or at least all over the UK, by, you know, different modes of transport. Yeah. To many destinations. Like you say, there's this kind of new exciting technology with the, the, um, the helicopter over, yeah. overhead. Um, there's kind of betrayals and double crosses and a secret that threatens the whole world. And there are lots of women falling over him mm-hmm. as, he, as he goes on his journey. I mean, it's all yeah. here. Mission Impossible is kind of a, you know, a more modern take on the story. And it has... It does have more modern attitudes to women um, and to the diversity of its cast, but it's you know the, the the elements were in place in 1935. Yeah, I think, and there are elements that are definitely shared uh, in Mission Impossible, as you said. Um, I was curious why do they go to Scotland in the first place in 39 Steps, but it's it's there's this this world trotting that happens in both films. Um, and actually, quick transportation, too. Everyone gets back to London from Scotland super fast, <laughs> uh, just as they go from Venice to Rome, or we, I guess originally Abu Dhabi to Venice, super fast. Um, you've got the train shenanigans. You've got the the dining cars. I noticed there's a mm. very still dining car. It's very quiet oh, yes. on, <laughs> in 39 Steps. And the chefs who are still working on the, the dining cars, it's tumbling off the uh, train tracks in... Um, in Mission Impossible, um, bumbling cops. Um, <laughs> but in, in 39 Steps, the, the cops have great hats, and I think that makes a big difference. I just love the hats in that. Um, 
food. I've got to say, there's this, the, the, you mentioned this scene. I love it. When uh, Hene, um, and since I was a kid, I love the scene. He just pulls out this massive piece of haddock. It's all ready to go. He cuts <laughs> these just outrageously thick slabs of bread and just puts butter all over them. There's no cholesterol medication anywhere near. <laughs> and it just makes me yearn for these days of bachelorhood when that's dinner. And he's making it for the lady, and she's impressed and happy. I just love that scene. It's a huge piece of fish. <laughs> oh, I just happen to have some haddock ready on this plate. Um, so, and I think um, it's interesting because they both seem like fantasy films on another level. Um, 39 Steps is really it's just a very studio-like look. You know, they're going to this tremendous extent to, to make this the film sort of seem fantasy-like. And... Um, I think it's it's different. Like today, people are going to tremendous steps to make things look uber realistic, you know. And back then, I think it, it's, um, but in the context of this like completely fantastical storyline, um, Hitchcock is really trying to make things look a little fantasy. Like those those images in Scotland when they're using sets, it's just bizarrely desolate, and it just it's very much a studio. And when they're hiding from the cops in Scotland, it's it's laughable because all they do is step under this fake bridge on some stage at <laughs> Shepperton or whatnot. Um, and uh, I just the fantasy like elements are in both films. It's, it's, they kind of work on opposite ways or opposite means, I think. But um, I liked that that piece of uh, of Thirty Nine Steps that's kind of preserved in the Mission Impossible franchise. It's just that it is un, it is unreal. Mm-hmm. You made the, you had the great quote about Hitchcock saying it doesn't matter if it's believable or not, or if if these things can happen. It's just a part of the story. Um, and I think the story is always central to Thirty Nine Steps. I don't think it is so in Mission Impossible. That's a big difference. I think the story is sometimes sacrificed for the action scenes. You'd be hard pressed to call the stuff in Hitchcock really high energy action scenes, but um, the story always is what those scenes serve i think which is kind of the opposite in mission impossible yep yep good point yeah Yeah, 39 steps is the proto mission impossible and the anti mission impossible at the same time yeah and it's for one thing that struck me is hitchcock's track record of working with writers and i know he was probably a pain in the ass for a lot of them but he worked (laughs) with so many different writers and and in the North by Northwest is written by a different person, but I mean, obviously it's based on this film and he just has this crazy record of working pretty well with a lot of different writers. And in a lot of those films, it's not just one writer. He's worked with a couple of different writers. And, uh, um, that is something that I don't, we talked about, um, Christopher McQuarrie at the beginning, like he wrote that first script, which is so good. And then I just wonder if, <laughs> if working with other material or other writers has not helped him so much, but I mean, there's good money and he's making a great living. So, all the power to him all power to him yep absolutely okay yeah well we have got time to quickly talk about what else has been playing yeah at this theater i'm going to force you to go first this time okay uh, have you seen anything else since the last time we spoke a lot for a couple, oh, yeah. of, couple of reasons, yeah. Um, I knew I could rely on you. Well, we had the three weeks this time. I think um, people might not know this, but we've um, gone three weeks when we normally we have. go two. So I've had an extra week in there. I've been completely at the end of summer vacation mode. So I've seen a lot. Um, the, the thing that was hardest for me to see was actually Mission Impossible because it left my neighborhood theater very early on. I think it had a ah. run of a couple of weeks. It was not popular in my neighborhood, so I had to go elsewhere to see it. But uh, then I started watching all sorts of stuff. I saw She's Got a Habit, which is Spike Lee's first film. Oh, wow. Interesting to go back and see that and see how 
um, how student-like it was. I think he was at NYU when he when was finishing this film or making this film or just out of uh, film school. So it definitely feels like a film school, but a film, yeah, film school film, but um, important to see all the same. Um, I saw The Quiet Man, John Ford's film with uh, mm. John Wayne when he goes back to Ireland as part of a John Ford film festival here. Um I saw a series, I think it was on Netflix, called Painkillers. I think you might like this. It's ah. all about the OxyContin uh, story here in the United States, and it pairs well if, if we've got anyone out there. I think I talked a while back about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is about photographer Nan Golden, who suffered from some uh, painkiller addiction, and she really had it in for the Sackler family. Mm. Um, and um, so that pairs really well. It's um, sort of reality-based. I mean, they've, they've definitely combined characters and, and played loose and fancy with um, some of the storylines, um, but it's great. And then I just well, I binged. I binged a series. Whoa! Only Murders in the Building, which is Steve Martin with uh, Selena Gomez and Martin Short, and I really enjoyed the first season, so I'll probably watch a future season. So, boy, I spent a lot of time in front of the boob tube. What about yourself? You have. Yeah. Um, I only have uh, two things playing at my theatre. Um, one of them, which one of them is Mission Impossible yeah. Three. Yeah. So we've been sort of slowly making our way through Uh-oh. the movies. Um, uh, Mission Impossible Three. Yeah, so kind of fine, maybe the low light of the series. I know yeah. you won't agree with that. You think you've just seen it. Um, <laughs> There's but, nowhere uh, to go. But it does have this one uh, particular um, thing worth recommending about it, which is that. Um, they spend the whole movie chasing after a MacGuffin, oh. uh, which is called the rabbit's foot. Yeah. And it's never made very clear um, what this rabbit's foot is or oh. what it does or, or what it's for or why a whole bunch of different people want to buy it or yeah. sell it or why they're trying to transfer it. And it gets to the very end of the movie and Tom Cruise asks his boss, spoiler alert, he asks his boss, what is the rabbit's foot? And the boss tells him, you don't need to know that. Oh. <laughs> and you never, ever find... They're not even pretending that um, you know, they're <laughs> going to tell you what it is. It really... They may as well have called it the MacGuffin. Oh. Um, so, which is, you know, it's notable. And, you know, they're kind of... They're playing with the audience, I think, here by... You know, the thing that Hitchcock said was that, it, you know, it doesn't really matter what the MacGuffin is. It's yeah. just the important thing is that the audience believes that it's important to the characters. Yeah. It's the only thing you really need to know. It doesn't really matter what it is. And so they're kind of very explicitly doing that uh, with Mission Impossible 3. Mm. Um, the other thing we watched, we saw this the other night, was the 2015 uh, screen version of Macbeth. Oh. Uh, Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard, um, directed by an Australian guy, Justin Kurtzel. Okay. Um, it's yeah, uh, pleasingly not too long. It's under two hours. Um, but the, the thing that uh, really kind of uh, made me surprised was at the end of the movie, um, the credits come up and you get the director and it says screenplay by, and do you know what it said? No. Oh, Shakespeare. William Shakespeare. <laughs> screenplay by Todd Luizzo, Jacob Kossoff and Michael Leslie. And I and I, and I, I kind of uh, spent the rest of the credits thinking, what? No, no, no what? Wait a no, second, no what? Bar. Who? <laughs> um, and then you know, later on, it says, "Oh, based on the play by William Shakespeare." Ooh. No, no, what? I don't yeah. understand how there are three people credited with the script when it's just wow. written by Shakespeare. I presume it's three people who got together and decided which bits they were going to cut out oh. <laughs> to make the film slightly shorter. Um, but I, yeah, I thought that was pretty remarkable. So yeah. well done, guys for writing Macbeth cheeky uh, but, and, and the film is kind of fine it's okay 
you know, it's, oh, I mean, oh my God, you know, Macbeth, fantastic play, difficult to mess it up, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, what a poem. Beautiful. So that was 2015, you say? To a 2015 version, yes. Like oh, and the other thing that really yeah. stood out was that um, uh, Harvey Weinstein gets a significant credit on the film as well. And I was Ooh. thinking, well, we won't be seeing that on many films yeah. in the future. Mm. It's interesting how that leaps off the screen at you now. Yeah. Um, well, next time round, um, the audience will be happy to hear that you have chosen the film and not me. So it's going to be a little bit more of a highbrow quality experience, I think, next time. What are we watching next time? Um, I believe we are watching uh, Past Lives, which is a 2023, certain feels like an independent film. Which is a Korean picture, is that right? Um, I think she's Korean-American, yep, yep. Takes right, okay. place um, mostly in, well, bounces around a little bit, Canada and New York City, following the... Um, Sort of the potential romantic life of a um, Korean who's moved gone from Korea and ended up in New York City via Canada. I think that's where the money is. You have a good point there. Uh, tax breaks, tax breaks. Three different countries. You get some money. Um, she sort of reconnects with a, a, I don't know, a friend or a love interest from childhood. And we're going to compare that to Sliding Doors, which I think is 96 or 97, somewhere in there. Yeah, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, it's one of those... Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in her English phase, right? Didn't she yeah. do a couple of these films with English accents and such? So um, uh, I think they'll pair well. I hope so for the crowd. So look for those. Let's find out. I've already seen Past Lives. So I, you are going to kind of lead on that one in part because it was two and a half months ago, I think, when I saw it. So, <laughs> But I haven't seen Sliding Doors uh, but the once when it was released. So, yeah. So I think it'll be good. And then, okay, we'll, uh, we'll talk about some old nonsense at the popcorn counter yeah, in the yeah. meantime. Definitely. Um, so uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, the, the 39 Steps is available absolutely everywhere. Yeah. I think it's out of copyright now. I watched it on YouTube. There's a whole bunch of different yeah. versions yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. It's, yeah I, uh, if anybody listening to this who hasn't seen it, go check it out. Yeah, yeah. Great movie. And I enjoyed Mission Impossible too. So I'm, I'm not going to complain. I had a nice time this week. Uh, thanks for joining us always. Uh, we will see you next time. Until then. Happy watching. Goodbye, everyone. That was a cheesy send-off, wasn't it? Well, I didn't hear it. I think you may have dropped out. I just said goodbye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>